Reading is from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy will, on my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have overcome and I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we look together at his word. Our Father in heaven, we live in a world where the times are confusing. We read again today of reports of violence and strife amongst the nations. The world that we live in is not an easy world, not an easy world to understand as Christians. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you uh, have a plan for the world. And I pray that you'd help us to understand our world and understand your plan for it better today. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. I have a friend who loves to read books. Uh, She loves to become absorbed in a good story. But she has at least to my mind, one very peculiar habit when it comes to stories. She she has to read the final page of any book first before she can read the first page. Oh, she loves a good story, but she has to know the ending first before she can engage and enjoy and persevere with the story. As I said, it's a peculiar habit, at least to my mind. Uh, The way I see things, normally stories work on suspense and uncertainty. They, They lure you in. And then the shot comes at the end. And that's why I don't understand films like Titanic. Because, of course, you know the ending before you even buy your ticket at the cinema. So I don't quite understand. But for my friend, 
she has to know the ending before she can begin the story. And actually, what is true for her is, is true for the Christian. Before we can really engage with the story God has for the world, before we can play our part, and before we can persevere through that story, what we don't need is suspense and uncertainty. No, we need to know the ending of that story. We're dipping into the Psalms over the summer, and the first two Psalms stand together as gatekeepers to the rest of the Psalter. They act as as an introduction, and together they affirm two crucial facts about the future that we need to know to live in God's story in the present. So if you're with us last week, Psalm 1 reminds us that no matter what the appearance of the world around us, the, the righteous person will flourish in the end. No matter how things look in the present, to go God's way, to, to feed on God's word, to delight on his ways, that way is the right way and it leads to blessing and prosperity and fruitfulness. That was Psalm 2. And it's, sorry, that was Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 contains possibly a personal perspective on the future, then Psalm 2 contains a global perspective on the future. And the message is very clear. No matter how appearances look at the present, know for certain, says the psalm, that God has anointed his king over the world, and that king will win. In other words, the unfolding of history is not random. It is not down to chance. There is a hand at the tiller of history. That hand is the Lord's, and he has a plan for the world, and he will exalt his king over the world. But of course, as we read our papers today, and as we look at the news around us, that ending, that future is not obvious to us now, is it? Not in this city, not in this country, not in this world. And it wasn't obvious for the psalmists. For the world around him and the world around us in many ways is a world at war. Psalm 2 begins with a question. Not the kind of question looking for an explanation, but rather a question that is an exclamation of surprise. Look down at verse 1. Why, says the psalmist, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? In other words, there is strife in the world. There is a revolt going on. The world is at war. But it is the war that shocks the psalmist. For in verse 2, it becomes clear who's involved. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. In other words, the world is at war against the Lord. The nations, that the peoples, that the kings of the earth, the creatures of God's creation now stand against their creator. And verse 3 tells us why. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. In other words, this war against the Lord is a war for freedom. It is a war for independence. They don't want the Lord to be in charge. Over the last few years, we've seen a number of nations around the world 
rise up in revolt against leadership across North Africa. We've seen the Arab Spring with uh, many nations uh, rising up and overthrowing the old regime, the old leadership. Um, Syria and Egypt are, are locked in, in a terrible struggle at the moment over, over power. And often I think in the media, the way that these stories are portrayed is that uh, the good guys are the underdogs, the people who are oppressed by the evil regime in charge of them. And often the stories are, are seen as being good stories, that the, 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 the little person, the underdog, is being able to rise up and overthrow the regime. And so I think often we're asked, invited, to take sides with the underdog, with the, the, the oppressed nation. And without trying to make any judgment call or speak into any different situations, a complicated story in, in each case, uh, that is the default position. I think we, we side with the underdog and we, we are against the, the ruler, the, the regime in charge. And so when we come to Psalm 2, is that how we are to read Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3? Uh, the nations as the underdog rising up against uh, the one who rules them as a, as a bid for good freedom, a, a good revolt. Absolutely not. At this point, we must read Psalm 2 in the light of Psalm 1. They, they, they come together, they stand as a joint introduction. And remember in Psalm 1 that the blessed person is the person who delights in the law of the Lord, the person who meditates on that law. That person is the one who finds true life and it flourishes and finds fruitfulness. And the word in the Hebrew, which we translate um, as uh, in Psalm 1 verse 2, as, as he meditates, that, that verb uh, means that the, the one who sort of mutters or murmurs to himself. And in Psalm 1, that muttering and murmuring is, is on God's law and he delights on God's law. But in Psalm 2, that very same Hebrew word is now translated, verse 1, as plot, the people's plot. In other words, the people's murmur and mutter to themselves, not on God's law, but how to overthrow God's law. There's a very deliberate play on words. The one who flourishes mutters God's law and delights on it. The one who is in revolt mutters rebellion against God's ways. Which means that in verse 3, that the chains and fetters that the nations want to throw off, well, it must be God's law and God's ways. And so what we see unfolding before our eyes in Psalm 2 is not some noble uprising against a terrible regime. No, what we see is a disaster. It is a tragedy unfolding before us. The nations are turning their back on the source of life, on the source of refreshment. They are turning their back on the good way, the fruitful way, the way delighting in God's word. They see God's word not as a source of life, but as a source of death, and they overthrow it, and it is a disaster. The world is at war with the Lord. Think of a a man lost in a scorching desert heat, stumbling around, thirsty, weakening, longing for uh, some source of water. And he stumbles towards an oasis, and there, there is water, there are streams of life. And the offer is open, come and drink from these streams. And he's thirsty and parched and longing for a drink. But imagine this scene if he says, I don't want that. I don't want your help. I don't want to go to the oasis. I want to, to go my own way. And he turns his back and stumbles off into the desert where there is no water and no life. 
That is the picture of, of the nations who rise up against the Lord and his anointed one. They are rising up against the one who offers life and fruitfulness. The world is at war with the Lord. But we're bound to ask, who are these nations? Who are these peoples, these rulers? Well, we know from the New Testament that this psalm was written by King David. And it was probably used by the kings of Israel at the time of coronation when a new king was established on the throne of Israel. And in that historic context, it probably did speak of of real nations with real swords who were really oppressing the people of Israel in real battles. And so this was a reminder and encouragement to God's king uh, over Israel that God was in charge and that he would give them victory over those nations. But by the time it gets to the New Testament, we find that the kind of meaning here has been broadened out. So famously in Acts 4, when Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish leaders for preaching about Jesus, uh, they are freed but they are warned, you must not speak again about Jesus. And with that news, they go back to the church. And the church gets on their knees and they start praying. And the prayer they base uh, their prayers on is the prayer of Psalm 2. They use Psalm 2 as a way of understanding what has gone on, understanding the opposition against Jesus, and understanding the opposition they are now experiencing um, from the Jewish and Gentile leaders. And they see their war as a war that they need to pray about. It's a war over speaking about Jesus and being open about the gospel. And I think that is the primary way now that the world fights against the Lord, fighting against Jesus, fighting against the message of the gospel. And our battle is a battle of prayer and a proclamation about Jesus. And we see symptoms of the war all around us today. Uh, Think of uh, recent legislation going through Parliament about marriage and other issues. How the world has taken an idea that belongs to God and and they've changed it. They've redefined it. They say, we're now going to decide how we view this issue. And they ignore what God has to say about it. It's becoming increasingly difficult to speak about Jesus in our schools. Uh, Whether you attend a school or you go into a school... Certainly, my experience that it's very, very hard to speak openly about Jesus. Or if you do, you have to so qualify truth about him that it becomes very personal and relativized. We feel this emotionally, psychologically in our friendships. People increasingly just don't get the whole idea of following Jesus. It seems bizarre to give our lives to someone to follow him. Uh, There's a subtle but severe sense of sort of mocking and um, bewilderment that we can get from our friends as we choose to submit ourselves to God's ways. All of these are symptoms of a larger issue, which is that the world is at war with the Lord. And like the early church in Acts 4, at times we can feel very small, very fragile. The, The ending can seem very uncertain. The days don't seem to point towards the future God has promised. And if we are to keep going, like that church in Acts 4, we need to see the world as God sees it and to know God's ending. The world is at war with the Lord. But next, and much more briefly, the world will not win the war. The world will not win. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Frank Bruno has been in the news recently. There's a program on, I gather, about his fight with uh, depression. Um, but of course, in his day, he was a formidable boxer, uh, a mighty opponent. Uh, just imagine the scene of all those years ago when he was in his prime as a boxer. Imagine I were to go up to him with my sort of five foot seven stature and to say to Frank Bruno, you know, come on, Frank, you, know, you and me, three rounds in the ring, let's, let's do it now, come on. Just imagine how Frank Bruno would respond to a pathetic challenge like that. I suspect he would laugh. Not laughing, trying to have a go at me or to sort of slag me off, but just laughing at how feeble the challenge is, how bizarre it would be to, to fight me. It, it was just an inappropriate match. And that is the kind of turn, I think, behind the laughter from heaven. The one in heaven is saying almost, if you like, I made you, and now you want to go into the ring with me and to see who will win? It's just a, it's a mismatch. It's so inappropriate. The world cannot, will not win this war. And notice how it is that God will win, verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's victory will come through his king, his anointed one. And who is this king? Well, verse 7, it is his son. Remember the words that came out of heaven at the baptism of Jesus when he came up out of the waters, remember? You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Hugely significant words. Jesus is the Son. He is God's anointed one. He is the one who rules over the nations. He is God's king who has been established over Zion. And there is something terrible, something awesome about King Jesus. Don't misunderstand the language. I think the language is written here in human terms to accommodate the infinite God to a finite human brain. But Jesus is not like a human. He's not unstable. He's not emotionally unpredictable. He's not moody like human rulers. No, he is fair and he gives warning and he is slow to anger. But the, the, the warning here is that King Jesus will rule. His judgment will be decisive. And when, verse 12, the moment comes for Christ to return, it will be a decisive moment. Then it will be too late for the nations. The world cannot win the war. I was involved in a mission in Oxford here a few years ago, and it struck me just as I spoke to various people, students and and others, who, who weren't Christians, I was struck by the confidence they had as they spoke about their own position in life. The way that they'd arrived at their worldview. They, they spoke about God as if he was the one who was in the dock. God was the one who had to justify his existence to them. He had to show himself to them. He had to, to make a case for himself. And maybe if they could be bothered, if they could fit in around their exams and their programs, they might just think about him and give him some space in their life if they could manage it. But do you see, in Psalm 2, God is not the one in the dock. Humanity is. God does not need to be defended. Humanity needs to be defended in many ways. A day is coming, and it will be decisive, when God's king will return, 
and he will bring a decisive judgment to the world. The world will not win. And Christians, we need to know the ending of the story if we are to persevere in the present. My own sense is that the days are coming in this country that we're going to see something we haven't seen for many generations. I I believe we will see a greater persecution, a greater defiance against God and his ways and his people. I suspect it will become much more difficult to stand up for the name of Jesus. And it's going to take real clarity, real conviction about God's king and about God's future to stand up for him in the present. And one of the truths that we need to focus on as God's people is that the world cannot win, it won't win in the face of God's king. It is a tough message this morning. It is a strong picture of the future. But just as I finish, I want to round off with how the psalm finishes. Verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Yes, there is a day of judgment coming. But now in the present, before that day, now is the season of refuge. The invitation is open to all those who would come. This psalm is an appeal. Don't remain in your rebellion. Come to the Son. Come and kiss. In other words, come and honor the Son. Come and bow down before him and give him the respect he deserves. And we would do well to remember how the Son first came to us. Remember the story of Jesus. He came to Jerusalem not on a war horse with a sword in his hand, but he came on a donkey. He came not to bring judgment, but rescue. He came not to condemn, but to save. Remember his words, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. I am gentle and humble. You will find rest for your souls. Yes, one day the Son will return, clearly as God's King, and that will be a day of decisive judgment. But by God's grace, we live in a season of opportunity. The way of living water, the way of flourishing and of fruitfulness, the way of refuge and rest is open to us. For those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, hang tight, remember the refuge, stay close to Jesus, rejoice despite how things often look, that we have a resting place in the storm and be confident that that our choice to follow Jesus is the right one. And for those of us who are still deciding, if we're here today and we're not sure who, what we think of Jesus, you're, you're welcome to be with us here today. But can I plead with you? The day is coming when Christ will return, not on a donkey, but he will come to judge. Avail yourself today of the refuge that he offers. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that is often hard to understand, that often feels like there is no purpose or no story to it. But we thank you that there is a purpose, there is a story. Father, please help us to be a church that is confident in your story, confident in your king, able to weather the storms. And we pray that we would be a a vehicle, a, a channel for blessing to others, that we would offer life, offer refuge, offer peace to a world that desperately needs it. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.